um, that we heard in Sunday school aren't really true much of these generation today. Uh, let me ask you, how many of you went to Sunday school as a child? Good number. How many of your friends you think went? Most of my friends went. And my dad was not a pastor, no. So, um, That's where we heard the stories, to tell you the truth, at the beginning, is we heard them in a teaching in classes, and we went through them, uh, including of Christ, Jesus, of course, from the Gospels, um, but also from the Old Testament. And uh, we sang about them, we heard stories about them, we had flannel graphs. We're using them again, and we're the life clubs. That's kind of exciting to me to watch them use those flannel graphs. Flannel graphs are cool. And in our high-tech age, they still fascinate how that stuff stays up there all by itself. Um, We want to look at a story that we're very familiar with. And it's an old story that we know well, and yet um, we don't want to just discard it and drive right past it because we are familiar with it. I I almost did that. I was very tempted to in the midst of our theme study, which is on the Christian and government. Uh, We looked at this as an overview, and I was really going to leave it at that, but I wanted to go back and uh, address several issues. Uh, One of them we already did, and that is the overview of some of the issues that have been involved in this passage. And one that I really didn't talk about last week at all was, I mentioned it, but I didn't really discuss it, was the uh, growing uh, position that the account of David and Goliath is simply legend or myth that has been inserted here to kind of prop him up. I mentioned it several times last week, um, but it is it is not just uh, here and there. In fact, most commentaries I pick up nowadays uh, give reference to that as a, a viable option here, and uh, that's disconcerting for many reasons. But uh, we dealt with the the issue that was there textually uh, last week, and here I want to really just deal with the account and really look at its instruction for us and stretching into its ramifications on David's life. We saw David as the anointed one, we now see David and his exploits. Um, we're going to then see that his exploits move him to inclusion within the royal family. And then we're going to see it turn on its head and become oppression. And, uh, and if you need any help with that, that's A-E-I-O. And you won't get to you because we won't get to Second Samuel. Okay. <laughs> Where he... Uh, Rises up. So, but, uh, so we have the anointed one. We have his exploits given to us. We're going to handle one of those tonight, uh, and see its result, which is his inclusion into the family, uh, and the close connection with Saul, Saul's son, uh, Saul's daughter, uh, married in the family, and all that's involved in that. We're going to look at that briefly as well. Uh, before I do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your Uh, word before us and its faithful record that uh, shows the exploits certainly of your people but also their failures, their uh, 
errors, uh, where they have had to confess and repent. And Lord, we know that this is unique in in its representation. And Lord, we uh, thank you for it. And we see here, certainly in the uh, work of a young man named David, we also see it in the midst of a troubling time for Israel in terms of her government and the transition that's there. And we pray that uh, you might instruct us by the material that is before us here and directed by your Spirit. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, as we talked about last week, whether we insert the count of chapter 17 and chapter 16 um, isn't a big deal to the Hebrew mind. They weren't that concerned about chronology uh, in their accounts, in their in their uh, descriptions, and, and uh, particularly in the prophetic utterances. But we find here uh, David showing up as a courier, uh, the youngest of the boys, being sent by dad to take some provisions to his three eldest brothers uh, with the expectation that he will check on their circumstance and how the battle goes and come back with a report. Uh, with no real intention that David would take up any arms during this period of time. Uh, certainly that would have fallen on some of his other older brothers, and hence sending the youngest. He arrives and finds a Philistine, and this Philistine Goliath, by the way, um, we is, he is the most heavily defined person, described person physically, of any person in the scriptures. We have more information on his physical features than anyone else. We know more about what he looked like than what Jesus looked like or David looked like or what Adam looked like. Um, maybe one or two that come very close to him would include men like Absalom that we know and I, we have the exact weight of his hair. Um, that's pretty impressive, especially for me these days. Um, I'd be real impressed. Get a haircut, that's what I tell them. Um, just because I don't have to anymore. <clears throat> but uh, we have this character introduced to us not as um, uh, someone that Israel didn't know. They knew him well. Uh, the Philistines knew him well. Uh, they were He was their champion. Uh, he was not just of one generation because we find later on when we get to 2 Samuel, we're going to deal with his sons. He had four sons. He also had a brother. Um, these were the boys of Gath and they were they were, they were giants as well, and they possessed 24 digits on their hands and feet, which means they had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. And at least one of them did. And so these are the attributes, and so we know his strength, we know his size, uh, we know his apparel, um, and we are also unfortunately introduced to his speech, where his whole focus is about uh, bragging and condemning Israel as cowards, and condemning hence their God as a weak and powerless God. And all the evidence shows that the Israelites let him have his way. He proposes something that is only occasionally described in ancient literature, uh, and some would hold that this is derived from those, and I would contend that those are derived from this. Um, And by the way, uh, this is one of the arguments that's really gaining a lot of traction uh, among the younger generation. And, uh, and I've heard these legends, the true uh, account, not true, the, the truly legends, but we have a few ancient stories. Um, we have 
less confirming their truth. We have less copies of them. They are fragmentary. Uh, they uh, involve all the issues uh, on a multiplied levels compared to the scriptures, considering all the copies we have of it, all the ancient manuscripts we have of it, and yet we still have a generation today that is being thrust upon with these other documents like the Gilgamesh uh, uh, storyline that they believe, well, that's where the flood story was taken from, as though one was uh, predates the other one. And similarly with this uh, event of David and Goliath, they're saying, well, this is just, they've stolen this from other literature and brought it into their tradition. But the literature they're talking about that has been stolen from um, is has more questions over them than we would ever have over Scripture. The only difference is, is that they don't claim to be authoritative Word of God, and therefore we don't have to listen to them. And, but we'll give them more credence than we'll give a scripture that's been proven extensively, archaeologically, uh, uh, in terms of the linguistics here, uh, textually, and uh, we'll, we'll be willing to throw this kind of passage away based upon a fragmentary uh, story of questionable origin but because it's an old story, then it must have more validity than God's Word. And it shows really where the heart is at. And so we have our Goliaths today, we really do, that are willing to profane the God of Israel and say he isn't what he claims to be. And uh, one of the things that uh, Goliath does that people say, well, this had to be transitioned in to this text from other literature, was that he proposes a combat by representative, uh, a champion. That, well, I'll be the champion from my side, you select a champion from your side, and let's go at it. And yes, we recognize that that's a rarity in that day, but it is not unknown in that day. In fact, later on, we are going to have a couple of generals sitting around, one from Israel, one from Judah, who are going to let the men fight as kind of representative, and then it gets out of hand. They all kill each other, all ten men end up dead, and it creates a, a, a battle between Israel and Judah. And so this representativeness, uh, kind of a sport thing, we've already seen it to a degree under Samson uh, in his presentation of himself as a champion of the people and really all the judges to some degree or another. And so it's not unheard of. Yes, it was rare in that day. But I also wanted you to note that uh, it didn't work. Um, Once the champion was dead, the Philistines didn't drop their arms and surrender. They ran. (laughs) They didn't fulfill. There was no binding contract. This is just this guy's idea. There are some key things, though, that we want to look at. And we want to pick up in verse 10. After the, the idea that whoever wins, the other ones will serve them. Verse 10 says, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Saul, all Israel, heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. And then... And that's how it ends, and it's really going to stay that way all the way through most of the verses. Uh, but in verse 12, um, there is the, the uh, contrast. Here comes this young guy, David, uh, shows up on the scene. This is, he's not there the first time the Philistine does this. He shows up after the Philistine has done this day after day after day. He has gone out, cursed the God of Israel, um, proposed this battle of champions, and has basically just called them all cowards. 
uh, and gone back every day without anyone challenging him. And again, we find, if we jump on to verse 28, 21, For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. They're lined up. And again, um, the battle doesn't happen because one soldier steps forward and says, let's start the battle with someone fighting me. And no one steps forward. Um, The indication was they were ready to go army against army, but Goliath's presence stopped them from just one guy or even ten guys charging this one man. He says, all right, here we go. All the men of Israel see Goliath. And verse 24, uh, when they saw the man, fled from him one man and were dreadfully afraid. And of course, they encounter David, who's back toward the back of the lines. He's there just to kind of see what's going on. Um, Men of Israel said, have you seen that guy? David's already like, why are we running away when the battle line has been drawn? They say, have you seen that guy? Verse 25, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. It shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, will give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Um, and David says, well, we need to take away this reproach from Israel. They reiterate that this is certainly what's going to happen. It's This is what's going to happen. If we can just find a champion, he'll kill this one man. And David's just inquiring, what's going on? And the implication is, is that why aren't there, why isn't there a line of men ready to take on this guy? That's kind of the attitude behind his questioning. It's like, I'll do it. What's in it? You know, what, what, what's the proposal? What, what's out there? What, what's, what's the deal here? They were all right. Why isn't there a line of guys? And the word comes out and it first comes to the notice of his eldest brother. Uh, Eliab gets that notice and he asks the question, why are you here? Uh, did you come here? And he con- accuses him of pridefulness and insolence that he just wanted to come down and see the battle. And from Eliab's perspective remember he's one of the ones that hasn't volunteered okay he hasn't stepped up and taken on goliath so what does he see when he calls him insolent prideful and trying to create watch the battle that he is trying to he almost as if he's accusing david of saying why are you trying to uh instigate one of us to go out there and be the sacrificial lamb in front of goliath you know you just want to watch a fight just want to watch some people die? Is that what you're here for? Uh, and and uh, there's already some idea that David is willing to do this, but from Eliab's standpoint, uh, the pressure really comes on him. Why am I not willing to do this? And the pressure's there from his youngest brother, and we all know how youngest brothers are so annoying, especially when you're the oldest, Right? Youngest brothers are so annoying. It doesn't matter how right they are. They're just annoying. Maybe especially when they're right. Eliab is, like any oldest brother, disgusted by this. He has brought question onto David's motives. Thinking, you just want to watch a fight. Um, you know, Why don't you go back to your few little sheep and go back to just being a little shepherd? 
uh, and really discarding what it meant to be a shepherd, what he had known David had been capable of. He knew David had killed a bear. He knew David had killed a lion. He knew David's capacities. But this is really an attack on David to cover Eliab's cowardice. You're going to go back home and tell Dad, I'm not willing to fight Goliath. But David's response shares some where his heart is really at. So there's the accusation against him. But uh, David's response in verse 29 is, What have I done now? And I love the phrase, What have I done now? Um, What does that tell you? Just the whole tone of that statement. What does it tell you? How often does David hear this kind of stuff from his older brothers? What have I done now? Um, here it is again, being picked on by my older brothers, being put down, being, being told, you know, you're the youngest, you just go be a shepherd, you're not that important. Um, after all, he's last in line for the inheritance, um, certainly Eliab would have been foremost, and, and so from David's perspective, this is just par for the course, what have I done now? What's the problem now? But then his second question is more revealing of his heart. His heart is not about his personal interests, and it's not really about the battle. He wants to confront his brother with the cause. Um, this is a matter that, that uh, there's a cause, that there's something that we need to fight about. And it's not about territory, it's not about authority, it's about This man is mouthing off blasphemy against our God. That's the cause. And David doesn't really defend himself. He simply says, you know, if I do convince a a handful of guys to line up to take on Goliath, what's the problem with that? This man is defying our God. How can that be wrong? to try to get these men to do that. And he goes back, and after having this discussion with his oldest brother, he goes back and starts to talk to the men again. Well, instead of them volunteering themselves, after hearing the way he's talking, they decide, this is a good volunteer right here. This, this kid's confident. He's he, he's He's convinced that we need to do this um, he's convinced that even he could do it so why am i not doing it you know you can almost see you can almost hear those words couldn't you i'd take him on why don't you go get him that's what teenagers do they just kind of prod you that way you know because they're indestructible but david's is a little more than just teenagerness um, he genuinely is a follower after god remember he's already been anointed He's already begun to be enlisted. His, his exploits are beginning. And this is the, one of the big ones. Um, he's already had two exploits that we know of from the account. And that is he's killed a bear and he's killed a lion by hand. In fact, he says he grabbed the lion by his beard and killed him. That's not with a stone, is it? Um, you don't throw a stone from a sling and kill a lion that way. Um, you, you're using a knife or a small sword, uh, to grab it by its beard and cut off its head. And so he's, he's capable, he knows his, what he's up against, he knows what he's able to do, um, and word gets to the right 
place. It was reported in verse 31 to Saul that there is someone willing to go up against him. And because none of Israel's men were willing to take on the assault upon their God, um, and because everyone's heart was failing them. And David's statement is, "Why none of you should be afraid. And that's the essence of his statement. Verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. None of you should be afraid because of that guy. None of you. Let, in fact, and so just to show you, uh, don't, uh, you guys don't even worry about it. I'll take care of him. You guys just get yourselves ready for the rest of the battle. I'll take care of that guy. I'll put it upon myself to take it, to take his life. Um, and, and he says, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul, of course, says, you can't do it. And he's, you're just a kid. He's been a man of war since he was a kid. He's got experience. He's got strength, size. He's got advanced weaponry, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Um, what do you got? Well, I have faith in the Lord. And remember, since his anointing, he is filled with the Spirit. And remember what happened when Saul was filled with the Spirit after his anointing? What happened next? He gathered the troops on. He took a superior force and he conquered them. The fear that's in Saul is a result of the lack of the Holy Spirit now, I contend that that is still the evidence today that when we are not filled with the Spirit, uh, indwelt but maybe not filled, that fear gets a grip of our heart and we do less and less for God. Even when we've done great things for God in the past. And here, Saul knows exactly what's going on in the heart and mind of David because it's gone on in his heart when the Holy Spirit was there. But he's lost the Spirit. He now has this, this, this spirit that's reminding him of the prophecies of his failure and the consequences of them. And so uh, David again recounts that I have uh, killed bear, I've killed a lion. Uh, this guy uh, isn't any tougher than those two. And in fact, he's right, by the way. Uh, strength for strength, even a giant man is not going to be quite as powerful as these creatures. So we come to the actual battle. Of course, Saul is allowed, is going to send him out there. But um, David's final statement that convinces Saul uh, is in verse 37. It's not his previous exploits. It's not just his brashness or youth. uh, But it comes down verse 37. This is what finally convinces Saul. It says, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. He finally found that here's not just a young man with some uh, experienced capabilities. He has already shown his strength and his bravery and his capacities. Um, Now he is demonstrating that there's more to this kid than just uh, physical evidence of the ability to fight this battle. But he is trusting in the Lord. And this has got to hit a tone with Saul. And Saul commits him to the Lord and says, May the Lord be with you. And he's going to head on out. He tries out the weapons. They don't work for him. I haven't tested them. I can't hardly even walk with these on. Not because of his small stature, 
but because he simply hadn't been accustomed to using them. And I like how most video portrayals of this, whether it's in the movies or in in, uh, cartoons, they have, you know, David as this really tiny kid, and, you know, the sword is as tall as he is, and all the stuff hangs on him, and it's like he's, you know, barely in there. There's like four Davids could fit in this uniform. And granted, Saul was the tallest Israelite, um, but David was no child, Okay, he was a young man. Uh, he was he had proven that in the field as a shepherd, uh, his strength and agility, um, his, his capacities were well evident. That the problem was that he hadn't been trained in in walking around. He had walked around in his shepherd clothing, and he was trusting in his speed, and that was immediately taken away by carrying a bunch of gear that he wasn't comfortable in. He hadn't been trained in them. He wasn't comfortable in them, and he didn't know how to really to use them. He knew how to use the weapons of a shepherd. And what are the weapons of a shepherd? The weapons of a shepherd are threefold. They have a, a staff. He would have had a small, uh, we would have, uh, a small sword. It would have been, a, it's very small, about that short. And he would have had his sling. Those were essentials, what he would be out there accustomed to carrying. And certainly this other stuff wasn't familiar to him. And let's just talk about how unfamiliar they were to him. The likelihood is, is that even the sword he had wasn't very good. And let me share with you why. How many swords were in Israel these days? Two. Two battle swords were in Israel. Saul had one of them. Jonathan had the other one. Remember? That Israelites couldn't have those weapons because the Philistines uh, basically said you have to come to us to sharpen all your tools and so even for their hoes and their and their plows and all that they had to go to the Philistine uh, communities down in Gaza to get them sharpened and that there weren't any swords found they're, they're just not there this is the way the Philistines had kept Israel at bay is that they had very poor weaponry so when Goliath gets up there and makes a challenge he is challenging men who are ill-equipped they have <laughs> not just uh, antiquated weapons. They, they don't have any for a lot of them. I mean, they're out there with, with the, the, the meagerest of weaponry. He's there. And the description of, of, Sam, of, Samson, of Goliath as all of his armor. And he's got three kinds of weapons. He's got his sword. He's got a spear. And he's got a javelin. And... You and I might think of a javelin and a spear as the same thing, but they really aren't. The, the, the idea of a javelin is this is something thrown. A spear is not normally thrown by a soldier. Okay? He keeps it in his hand and uses it over and over again, typically, whereas a javelin is something he throws and releases. Uh, we think of that as a spear. And so he has these three, and they're described for us, and, and he has all of his armor on, and Israel largely didn't possess any of those things and so we he had all the advanced technology militarily and here comes david he's not trained in that because most israelites weren't trained in it because there weren't any around to be trained in and this comes now to the verbal exchange between david and goliath directly and this is why it becomes so important we start to think you know these israelites they don't have a sword around they just don't have it. Not a battle sword. Maybe some small little ones. Um, 
for personal defense, we would call them oversized knives or something. Uh, maybe in Australia, they just call those a little knife. You know, I got a little knife here. Remember the movie? The guy thing's got a blade that long. Um, so David comes into exchange, and the exchange talks like this. You're coming out to me with sticks, Goliath says. And David's response, and it's repeated over and over again, was he's going to do it without a sword. I'm going to come at you not with sword. I'm going to come at you with the word of the Lord. And so the Philistine says, I'm going to feed you the birds of the air, verse 44. Um, we come to verse 45. David says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God, the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you and take your head from you. How's he going to do that without a sword? You ever think about that? David is already prophetically saying, I'm going to take you down. I'm going to cut your head off with your own sword. And by the way, this is, uh, uh, this is repeated several times, this theme of killing somebody with their own weapon. Uh, I'm going to take it, and there's going to be a spear guy that's going to be out-wrassled for the spear and killed later on in 2 Samuel. Um, and so the idea of being killed with your own weapon is just the ultimate disgrace. I mean, here you had a weapon... You got it taken from you, and then you got it used against you. And so David's saying, I'm not coming at you with sword, spear, javelin. I got none of those big three. Uh, he has no armor. He's coming at you in the name of the Lord. So he makes it very clear this is because of you defying not the army, uh, and not me, and not my king, but our God. And the verbiage here in Hebrew is pretty uh, direct. Uh, the translation here is the God of the armies of Israel, uh, the Lord of hosts. And that is that this is the Lord Almighty, the Lord of, Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, that you are defying our God. And he makes this very quickly into a spiritual combat. This is between your gods, God, and this God, the God of Israel. And uh, I'm going to, the Lord's going to deliver you. I'll strike you and take your head with from you. This day I'll give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines of the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly, and that's both sides, by the way, the Philistines and the Israelites, shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So for David, it was important that he go out there less armed. It was important that from a physical perspective, from, from uh, in terms of, of advanced technology, in terms of, of strength and power, it was important that he go out there and look like a dog uh, with, or no, a child with sticks. Um, you come at me, uh, oh, I'm sorry, he says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And, uh, you know, you send out this young guy with a stick, you know, because that's all he had. He did have his shepherd's staff. He was armed with more than just a sling. He had his shepherd's staff with him, too. These are the things he's familiar with. Okay, so he was prepared to defend himself a little bit, if necessary. The staff would enable him to misdirect javelin, help him against a spear, maybe a little bit against a sword, probably not against that sword, 
um, because of its weightiness. Uh, probably would have cracked his staff pretty well. Um, but he was ready to do some defense, but his only real offensive tool was five rocks in a pouch and a sling. People say he used five because there were five giants. He was ready to take them all on, if necessary. Um, but he had those five smooth stones. He's ready there with the sling. And this is important because he wants it to be understood that it's not about the equipment. You've been taking metal away from us. We don't have any swords in our land. We can't sharpen anything metal unless we go to you. And uh, so uh, there's no blacksmith in our land even. And uh, But I want you to know that when you're fighting the Lord's side, how you're equipped is not really so important as who you're serving. And then we come to verse 48. And it's kind of important because one of the things said against this is why did Goliath fall down forward instead of backwards when he's hit by the rock? And this, I think, answers that very easily. Uh, and so it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David and that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. These two guys have verbally <laughs> gotten each other riled up and they're both on their move. Um, they are both on full attack mode. David is not going to sit back and wait. He is running towards Goliath. And we're going to see why here in a little bit, uh, why it's important that David is running as he's going. So David is in full attack mode. He's gone into full uh, scale run. He's running faster than Goliath, which you'd expect because this giant guy is carrying a lot of weight. And so, But he's still running as well. So they're running directly at each other. As he's running, David puts his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine's forehead so the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. And people say, well, why didn't he fall backwards if he was hit so hard with a rocket sunk into his forehead, which they questioned that as well, that it would have penetrated through his armor to do that. Um, but again, at full run, uh, depending upon the configuration of the helmet, we're not told... Um, that he had full face shield or anything like that. And so the penetration was was expected. And here Saul was or sorry, Goliath wasn't concerned. He didn't see the potential of that weapon. Um, and by the way, that is not a rare weapon in battle in that day. Okay, that was right up there with the archers, the archers and the slingers. And they were commonly used in battle. Um, but he just discounted it because of his armor. Uh, and struck the Philistine, and he fell on his face to the earth. And why is that important that he falls on his face? Um, throughout Scripture, you're going to find that the enemies of, of God, um, when they lie, fall backwards. Uh, when they are ready to be destroyed, fall forward. And this is really reminiscent of Dagon. Remember what happened to Dagon? Now you go, oh boy, what was that all about? Uh, you have to go back to the First Corinthians, remember, or First Samuel, where where we start. What happened to Dagon? Remember, the the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. They put it in the temple with Dagon, and they come back in the morning, and where is Dagon? On his face. They stand him back up. They go out. They come back the next day, and Dagon isn't just fallen over on his face, but his head's broken off as well. And many people look at this and say what they're trying to picture is that this is the power of God, just as God showed his power 
in the Ark of the Covenant in the Temple of Dagon. Remember, that's the God of Goliath. That just as the Ark did that to your idol, God is going to do that to your person. You're going to fall on your face and then your head is going to be removed in that order. Same order as what happened to Dagon, your false god. You put your god against our god, that's already happened a generation ago. That happened back there in the days of Eli. And your God lost and your people were filled with boils. And, but Goliath forgot all about that. He ignored all that. And so it's going to happen to him as kind of the one that is the champion of the Philistines. And so um, he falls. Verse 50. Um, David prevailed with the Philistine with a sling. And this is a generalized statement. So we have verse 49. And we want to, this is very carefully said. Verse 49, we have the combat, the initial combat. So they're both running at each other. David on the run is doing this, which he would have been practiced at. This is, a shepherd doesn't stand still to take down a lion who's carrying off one of your lambs uh, or a bear. They're carrying it off, which means they're moving, and you got to chase them after them. And so he's accustomed to running and doing this um, and letting it go with good accuracy. And so... Um, they're running at each other. He flings the stone. The stone penetrates, and Goliath falls forward on his face. Uh, that's the first contact, and there was no sword in the hand of David. Um, and so at the end of verse 49, we have that first encounter. Verse 50 now is kind of a general statement. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. And so we find uh, now an issue. Here's the issue. Did the stone kill Goliath? Well, it certainly brought about the death of Goliath, if it went directly, indirectly. And so we we usually look at verse 50 as a summary by the author of the overall event. Um, But certainly you get something that's going to penetrate your skull uh, in the middle of your forehead, uh, it's bringing about your demise. Is it likely that he is totally not breathing when David runs up? No. The likelihood is he's still, uh, some would contend he was just knocked out, but with this kind of penetration, I would contend he's seriously injured, but he's not done. He is not done. Now, if Valerie were here, she'd explain to you how that is with hard-headed people. Because she's taken shots with too small a weapon at too large of an animal and hit them right between the eyes. They dropped, but they didn't stay down. They were going to die eventually from the wound, but they were going to be trouble for a while. Um, and so we chased that Watusi all over that ranch and put multiple shots. It was just too small a gun. Um, so David's dropped this giant. He's dropped him. It is likely, ultimately, a mortal wound but that doesn't mean Goliath is incapable of fighting. And that's why we come to the next verse, verse 51, and we pick up where 49 left off, with 50 being kind of a summary verse. It says, Therefore David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. That is, with the Philistine's sword. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And so um, David is at full sprint. He has hit the guy 
knocked him down, and uh, you don't want to wait around for Goliath to see if he's going to get back up. David runs up while the guy is is struggling. Maybe he's unconscious. Maybe he's not. Uh, he's certainly down and struggling. And David comes up, takes the sword that likely it is he had sword in hand, perhaps in sheath. Uh, well, it says it's pulled out of the sheath. So he's looking at, at uh, taking him with a, a spear, drew it out of its sheath and killed him. And so um, he's going to, whether he, and some people say, well, he killed him and then cut off his head. Again, these are technical issues um, about whether he you know, stabbed him first with the sword and then cut off his head or just took his head off as a kind of execution. Um, but uh, we find him victorious. And again, uh, we can sit here and if, if you don't believe the Bible, you'll find issue with this. Because it says twice that he killed him. You can't kill a guy twice. Well, again, in a Hebrew storytelling, this is common. So you have an overview of the whole incident and then the specifics sandwiching that overview. Very common in the Hebrew storytelling. That yes, ultimately, David's primary weapon was his own, and that was a sling and a stone. His secondary weapon was not his own. It belonged to the Philistine. And between those two, Goliath's head was off of his body, and you're pretty much done for then. Now David does something kind of interesting. He's going to, and again, the Hebrew storytelling is different. They don't care about chronology. And so the next thing we find about Goliath's head is it's going to be put on the wall of Jerusalem. But then later on in the chapter, we have it being shown to Saul. Well, how can he show it to Saul when he's already put it on the wall? Well, obviously, they wanted to tell you what he ultimately did with the head. But on the way to putting it on the wall of Jerusalem, um, he does bring it to Saul and say, here's the evidence, I did the job, the man is dead, I get all the reward that's offered to the guy that killed him, I'm the guy. Um, Ultimately, where does the head of Goliath end up? It ends up on the wall of Jerusalem. And that's kind of interesting, because Jerusalem isn't an Israelite town. Jerusalem doesn't belong to Israel. It's a Jebusite town, and they are allies with, guess who? The Philistines. So what is David telling the world? We've got the Philistines on the run. We're hunting them. We're chasing them back home. What's he telling the world? He's saying, listen, what we did to the Philistines, here's their champion. I'll lay, I'm going to hang him from your wall of Jerusalem. And if you want to come in behind our flank, we're ready for you too. We can take your guys down just as easily as we take it. And it's kind of a foreshadowing of what David's going to do. He's going to conquer Jerusalem. And he's almost kind of baiting them right off at the beginning here, saying this is the place. And remember, he didn't live very far from Jerusalem. <laughs> he lived down there in Bethlehem, which is just like, what, 10 miles south of Jerusalem? So he knew Jerusalem as a city. He had been there. And he's giving warning to them. Great picture of a young man who say, I'm committed to doing the work of God. I'm going to defend the testimony of God. I'm going to do it with the equipment that God has given me and trusting God to do all the rest. And he sends the enemy running. 
he essentially trusts God not only in directing him, but also in his preparation. I don't need to be prepared by man's wisdom. I can be prepared. God has prepared me enough already. Uh, and, and there's no place to place blame on God that I'm not tall enough, I'm not big enough, I'm not old enough, I don't have the right sword, I don't have armor. He doesn't do any of that, which are complaints that I hear all the time, not those exact ones, but similarly, um, of why we can't serve the Lord. Well, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not eloquent. and I, I always think of things after the conversation and what I should have said 20 minutes later. Well, welcome to the club. Okay, all of those are my excuses. They just don't stand. Um, God says, trust him that he has prepared you for the ministry he has for you. And pursue it. And he'll make up the difference. And this is the testimony of David. And it brings him uh, note in the kingdom, brings him note before the king, uh, brings him note before the Philistines. They're going to talk about him Later on, about this victory and about this song written about him that we're going to be looking at, that we have already looked at. Um, but this is all about your God versus my God. And when we talk about this thing about David's taking on Goliaths, and we use that terminology in our culture today, um, we have abused it because we're talking about the little guy taking on the big guy. But in this context, that wasn't David's attitude. In David's heart, he wasn't the little guy. He wasn't the ill-equipped man. Because he had the Lord. And that made him the giant. And he's going to attack that Philistine with the strength of the Lord because his God is the true and living God. And so while we use this account in our culture and in our uh, language, to talk about uh, someone that overcomes the odds. Um, for David, there was no odds to overcome. <laughs> the odds were all in his favor. He didn't need the sword, the spear, the javelin. He, didn't, he turned them down. Remember? Because he already had all the odds in his favor. He's God's man. He's been anointed. He's been spirit-filled. God's equipped him enough, gave him enough experience. Um, yeah, it wasn't with giants or at war, but it was with lions and bears. That's enough. And he takes on the enemy of God's people, God's enemy in his name. And that's what's going to bring David forward um, as the champion of Israel right into his kingdom and beyond. Okay. Gone late a little bit tonight. Got a little excited about this story. I hope you appreciate the testimony of David there um, to both the Philistines and to the Israelites that day. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this faithful account. And we thank you for uh, that testimony of a young man who can trust you with all the resources he has that you've given him at his disposal. Use them um, with all the skill that he uh, had developed, but ultimately his trust was in you. And he gave you the glory from the beginning to the end. And Lord, we pray that we might uh, let him be an example for us. Not to keep from excusing ourselves from why we can't serve you, why we can't take on 
the Goliaths of our day. Lord, that we can uh, have the same God, the same power, and the same glory to be evident. Lord, we pray that we might truly be soldiers of your cross. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.